If you didn't bring one, please grab the blue Bible out of the hymnal or out of the pew in front of you next to the hymnals. You can open that pew Bible to page 886. We are in the Gospel of John, and we are in the first chapter of it. So we've been going through Genesis in the fall. We've almost finished up the book of Genesis. We have a few chapters to finish the book after Advent next year in January. But for Advent this year, we're doing a little short series in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, mainly because it goes really well with the book of Genesis. And it goes well with the Advent season. So we're going to spend, we're going to spend five, we have five sermons in the, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. We'll have four Sundays and Christmas Eve will be one of those five. So we're going to go through this text in five parts. It actually, I think, falls out more in seven parts, but we're going to do it in five. At least I counted seven, because that's how I like to count, right? I get to seven and then I stop. We're going to read the prologue together. So we're, our, our sermon text is just the first two verses. We're actually going to read the first 18. So that's like the introduction or the prologue to the entire book. And it's one chunk of text. We're going to read it all together. So here's verses 1 through 18 of the Gospel of John. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears that hear and eyes that see and understand what your word is saying this morning about who your son is. I pray that we would then respond with hearts of faith and in lives of faithfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When you're discipling, I want you to imagine, when you're discipling someone, you yourself, you're discipling somebody who just became a Christian. Someone who just begins to need to learn more about the Bible and the new faith that they have. Where do you turn in the Bible? Where's the first place you start reading the Bible with that person who just became a Christian? Or... When you're explaining your faith to somebody who doesn't share it yet, someone who's exploring what it means to be a Christian, where do you go in the Bible? Where's the first place you would go 
to start reading the Bible as someone who wants to understand Christianity to see if it needs to become their faith. They're exploring it. And many times I've heard the answer to that question, both of those questions, be the Gospel of John. Are you discipling somebody? They've just become a Christian. Where do you start reading? Start reading and studying John. You're meeting with somebody who's exploring the faith. They want to understand what, what the gospel is. What do you start? You start with the gospel of John. Right? I hear the, that as the, main, as the answer I hear probably most often to that, those questions. But then, then I read a passage like this one. And I say, really? This is not exactly lightweight reading here. Right? This is pretty thick text. It's heavy duty. It's kind of ethereal, frankly. It feels a lot, it feels like there's a lot of philosophy going on here, like theological philosophy. Lots of metaphors, lots of images, and I think it can be hard to understand for somebody who's been a Christian for a while, much less somebody who's exploring Christianity or beginning just to figure out their newborn faith and learn more about it. I mean, look at the first two verses of our sermon text. This is our sermon text this morning, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There's so much packed into those two short sentences of four clauses that honestly, as I started to prepare to preach this sermon some weeks ago, I had trouble narrowing down. Like, what on earth do I even talk about in half an hour with these two verses? Because there's so much going on. I don't even know where to start. So then I just asked the next question was, why do we start people reading the Bible here? Maybe we should start somewhere else. Maybe this isn't the best place to start. Maybe, what, what if we start like at the beginning of the Bible? Because the Bible actually is one book of 66 parts meant to be read in order from beginning to end. So why don't we have people start at the first book of the Bible where we've been studying in Genesis? So I'm like, let's flip back there. That might be easier. And if we flip back to the first chapter of Genesis, we get to read this. Maybe this is a better place to start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And then we say, wait a minute. Didn't I just read something just like that? That sounds almost exactly like the beginning of the book of John. In fact, both books are beginning all very, very similarly, right? They both talk about God and what God says and God's word. And in both of them, we have this theme of there's light coming into the world. And suddenly we have get this idea that the gospel of John isn't beginning the gospel story. And in fact, is telling us that in the way it starts. This is not the beginning of the gospel here in the gospel of John. It's just picking up on a story that's already been in progress a long time. Right? Like those football games. The game you want to watch is on, and the game that you don't want to watch has gone into overtime. Right? And the overtime game just keeps going, and then they cut into the game you wanted to watch already in progress. That's kind of what the Gospel of John is doing. It's jumping into the story already in progress, but not just a couple minutes into the first quarter. Right? It's already after halftime when John gets going. It's a story already in progress. And so we say, well, maybe Genesis isn't the best spot. I mean, if you read Genesis, you also have to end up in Leviticus pretty soon, and that's a bad idea. So let's not start there. Let's not start, let's skip the first five books of the Bible. Let's start with Joshua. We'll have somebody start reading in Joshua. 
to learn about the Christian faith. God has already saved his people in Joshua out of Egypt, the land of sin and death, by the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn son. They've been wandering around in the wilderness and now they're ready to go in, right? They've got this mission, go settle the land that God's promised them to go live with him for worship and blessing. And right out of the gate in Joshua, if we turn to Joshua 1, we read God giving Joshua, here's your charge. This is your mission. And God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, the written word, the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, the written word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Well, that's the beginning of Joshua. And we read that and then we say again, wait a minute. The book of John begins with the word of God. The book of Genesis begins with the word of God. Now Joshua apparently begins with the word of God as well. Keep the book of the law. Keep the written word. Have it with you all the time. Meditate on it day and night. Do everything that's written with it. Written in it. So the word was in the beginning with God. Not only that, in John, not only was the word of God used to create and shape the heavens of the earth in Genesis, now the word becomes in Joshua that which creates and shapes the people of God and gives them their mission and their goal and their purpose for existence on earth so that they can glorify God and enjoy him forever in the land that they get to go into. It's starting to sound a little bit like a theme. We say, well, if we keep reading Joshua, though, if we start someone there, If we start someone in Joshua, then we're going to eventually have to get to Judges. And that book is a mess. Because then people stop listening to the Bible and start doing what's right in their own eyes, and the people of God become this horrific, horrible, big stinking pile of mess, as some people sometimes say. It's, It's bad. So let's not go to Judges. Let's miss Joshua. Where else can we take someone to start learning about the Christian faith or growing in it? How about Psalms? Right? We revisit Psalms every year at Grace Covenant. Maybe someone new to the faith, they need to learn how to pray like we've just been doing in Christian formation this semester. Or how about someone who doesn't yet know Christ? It would be good to teach them about how their Heavenly Father talks so that they learn to speak to him as they come to faith in Christ. So let's go to Psalms. Let's open the book of Psalms. We'll start reading there instead. And we would read this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and not stand in the, in the way of sinners, and not sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf never withers, and everything he does prospers. And we say, wait a minute, that sounds like the other stuff we've just read. In fact, it's starting to sound a little bit like a conspiracy, that the beginning of the book of Psalms and the beginning of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Genesis all sound similar to the beginning of the book of John. And it may be possible that there actually is a conspiracy. (coughs) I'm sorry. I've got this tickle and it may get bad. 
we didn't actually pick we didn't actually pick those books at random. Those are the lead books of the three sections that comprise the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament. So the Hebrew Bible comes in three parts in the Old Testament. It comes in the Law or the Torah. It comes in the Prophets. And it comes in the writings. Those are the same three parts that Jesus opens up in Luke 24 when he opens up the Old Testament to teach his disciples who he is. He teaches them from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings. Same three parts. And it's interesting that the three lead books and the three first chapters in the three parts of the Hebrew Bible all start with the necessity of the Word of God for our existence and for a life of blessing that both glorifies God and allows us to enjoy him forever. And that is hardly a side note in the Bible or a coincidence, right? The Word of God is actually a major theme in the Word of God, in Scripture itself. So the Gospel of John, we find, is situating itself right in the middle of that biblical theological theme of the absolute necessity of the Word of God for existence and life to be able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But in another way, the beginning of John is actually marking something completely new, Right? This is something completely different. The word of God has been written up until this point, and now John is introducing us to a word of God that is becoming incarnate, a person. And this is the only way we can know God. There is no other way. We cannot get to him on our own. We cannot understand him with our own intellect or our own reason or our own experience unless God reveals himself to us. Scripture teaches he reveals himself to us, he mediates himself to us through creation and through his special revelation through the word. And that's it. His word has created the world. His word has been spoken through the prophets. His word has been written down in a book like the one Joshua was called to obey, like the one King David actually had to write out by hand on his own and keep with him all the time as he led God's people so he would know it and follow it himself. Like the one in Psalms 1, David says we need to be meditating on day and night. But now God's word is coming to us in a different way and in a way that it never has before. And that's where the Gospel of John comes into the story that's already in progress in its very first verse. This is, this is something completely in keeping with the testimony of Scripture, and it's something completely different than what we've seen before, and it's both. So as we begin reading, as we open John and say, in the beginning was the Word, we're already learning something about our Bibles, aren't we? Whether you're reading this book with somebody else, you yourself, so that you can disciple them in their walk with Christ or help them explore the Christian faith, or someone is reading it with you for the same purposes, or you're reading it in your quiet times. The Gospel of John immediately begins teaching us about the very Bible that it sits within. And that's important. The Bible is teaching us who made us and what we're made for and why we're here. That's what the Genesis series has been talking about. The Bible teaches us how to live and the mission that God has for us in the, God, in the, uh, in the book of Joshua, which Pastor Luke has taken us through in the last couple of years. The Bible teaches us the difference between a life of cursing and death and blessing and life and the book of Psalms, which we go through every year in the summer. It's the Bible who teaches us who Jesus is in the Gospel of John. These are not tangential things. These are not secondary issues. The Bible is teaching us the very meaning of human existence and the reason why this world is the way it is and what it is we need to be doing to participate in God's redemption, glory, gospel program to save it. 
It's the only way that you can understand. Remember Ecclesiastes two years ago? It's the only way you can understand how to live a life that is not the spray bottle. That just evaporates and goes away. A life that matters and a life that lasts will only be found in the word of God as it points you to the Son of God so that you can learn and love and live Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God is a theme that spans all of Scripture. From one end to the other, we hear about the necessity of the word of God written and incarnate for the Christian, for the one who would believe. And most of all, the word of God is answering the most important question, I think, that we, that anyone can ever ask. The Gospel of John's main question that it wants to answer is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So our first reflection on reading this verse, before we get into some of the details of the grammar, I think our first reflection on opening the gospel of John should be, how well do you really know the word of God? How well do you know your Bible? And in this question, I'm meaning the written word of God, Genesis, Joshua, Psalms, all the way to Revelation, that this verse is riffing on and intensifying and becoming incarnating as a person. And by know your Bible, I mean know your Bible in a way, I want to be very specific. Here's what I mean. In a way that it shapes the course of your life and the words that come out of your mouth and your regular, ordinary, everyday actions and what you think about and what you love and that it then influences through you the people who are around you. That's what I mean. I'm not asking if you can win a Bible trivia contest. Like, if you know the Bible that way. That's fine. I, I think we should know some facts and figures and be able to list the books of the Bible and, and know our Bibles well enough to be able to find stuff in them. But winning a Bible trivia context does not make you a biblical, godly person. Any more that winning trivial pursuit will help you in ordinary daily life live well, right? We used to have trivial pursuit. I think we got rid of it because we were all frustrated with feeling stupid. But I, at one time... We had it, right? And sometimes in, in ordinary life, it really helps you to know how many years really were the 70 years war. How long did that really run? Because it's a trick question, right? It wasn't 70 years. Or what was Cindy Lauper's number one 1984 pop hit? You know, that, now that's valuable information. Occasionally. But winning Trivial Pursuit doesn't mean you can live well in everyday life. Any more than winning a Bible trivia contest means that you will be a godly person loving, learning, and living Jesus every day. So what I'm asking is not can you win the Bible trivia. I'm asking how has the Bible gotten into your soul so that it shapes who you are and how you live and what you do every moment of every day. That's what I'm asking. So I want to ask a few questions. These aren't quite Bible trivia questions. They're a little more, a little broader than that. And I want to ask them based on our current context. And here's what I think our current context is. So a couple of questions about how well you know our, the Bible and living in a country and in the context of a people who increasingly know little or nothing about the Bible and who cannot answer the question, who is Jesus, in a way that Jesus himself would actually recognize as accurate. That's where we live, I think. And in a context a country where large segments of the visible church have actually capitulated to that culture and have abandoned the gospel and the word of God. And even inside many of our churches, we live with people who cannot actually answer the question, who is Jesus, in a way that Jesus would actually recognize as describing himself. 
That's the context. So let's imagine ourselves having to answer some questions about the Bible. For completeness, I'm going to ask seven. That's a nice number. So here are the seven. If you would like to jot these down in your bulletin notes and then write your answer to them, please feel free to do so. Here's the first question. How would you answer someone if they asked you, what is the story of the Bible? In one or two sentences. What is the story of the Bible? And then I, one or two sentences and then point to a specific passage in Scripture that encapsulates that. You need to give evidence for your answer. What's your evidence? What passage would you take someone to? They just want to know what the story of the Bible is. They've never heard it. Second question, what if someone asked you, why do you believe the Bible's true? Why do you personally believe the Bible is true? Could you give a concise answer that would begin to satisfy the person asking you? And what passage or two, you could have two this time, one or two passages in Scripture you would go to to show them the evidence for your answer? How would you answer that? Why do you believe the Bible is true? Question three. So those are two more about the content of Scripture. Now we're going to talk about its living. What if someone asks you, in your job or your school or whatever context you usually live in, asks you to steal or lie or do something that you know is wrong as part of your job or as part of your work as a student or wherever it is you are, cheat on a test, lie to a client? What if someone asks you to do that Could you answer them with a passage from Scripture as the reason you would not do so? What passage from Scripture would you go to if someone asked you to steal or lie as part of your job? How about this? Question four. What if someone wants to know what you and the Bible think about homosexuality? Where in the Bible are you going to turn to help them understand the truth and learn about Jesus at the same time? What passage will you take them to? If someone asks you, what do you believe, what does the Bible believe about homosexuality? Where would you go to? Do you know your Bible? Question five. What if someone challenges you about human beings being transgender? Or they think that they are one of the 32 or however many it is genders we've imagined now. Could you graciously and clearly Explain to them what scripture says about those things. And could you point them to a text or texts in the Bible to do so? What would be your evidence? Can you answer that question? Those are questions, I think, that relate directly to the culture and the people amongst whom we live. I'm going to give you a sixth question now that relates to our own hearts. It's very easy to look around at other people. I would like you to use the word of God, as James describes it, like a mirror and go look at yourself in it. That's question six. When you are making decisions about what goes on in your life, do you do it with an open Bible? Either literally or through what you've memorized and meditated on and already know. When you make decisions about life, do you do it with an open Bible? And I mean all kinds of decisions. I mean normal daily decisions about what to do in everyday life at your job, your work, your school, your home. And I mean about large direction determining, like, what are we doing for the next five or ten years, and how am I going to decide that? Are you doing that with the text of Scripture open, seeking direction from the message and the theology and your understanding of Scripture? When you make decisions of life, are they driven by the Bible or something else? How well do you know, do you know the Bible? Well, however well or however little you know God's written word, 
like John 1.1 1, 1 and what it says and what it means, right? The verse we're studying in our sermon text today. There's no one here who doesn't need to learn their Bible a little bit better, right? Let's, let's just be honest. Reading and studying and memorizing and meditating on the Bible, that lasts your whole life. The work of discipleship and shaping you to be more like Jesus that the Spirit does through the Word, that never stops. We just keep at this over and over and over again. The ordinary daily work of Word, prayer, and sacrament. There's nobody here who doesn't need to do that more. So here's one way you could obey this text this morning. Commit yourself. Commit yourself to working on your small group's Bible study. Whatever it is you're studying in your own small group. And coming to your small group prepared to learn from other people too. Because that's one of the main things our small groups do here. Is we do Bible study. If we're not doing Bible study, it's not a small group. It's something else. And we do Bible study with two goals in our small group. We want to learn what the Bible says so we can live it. That's always our first goal. And we want to get better at that as we do it together. Because the only way to get better at Bible study is reps and practice and doing it over and over again. So in our small group, we're studying the book of Micah. It's a short book. We thought it would be a nice thing to do before the end of the year. And we discovered that it might be short, but it's a good deal harder than we thought it would be. So one good thing about studying the book of Micah is it's challenging and stretching us, both in what it says and in trying to figure out what it's saying. So hopefully the next time both we will be more conformed to Christ by having studied through Micah and the next time we come back to study one of the minor prophets, we'll be better at it than we were this time, right? And those are our two goals. So if you're not in a small group at Grace Covenant, and this doesn't sound like it applies to you, here's good news. It's a good time to join one. Our small groups are all retooling right around the beginning of the year. And for the first time, at least since I've been here, we're all going to do the same study at the same time for a while in all of our small groups, which means they're all starting over and doing something new. And that is a really good time to jump in and join one. And if we need to make a new one, we will try to do that so there are enough for everybody to be in one. So how well do you know the Word of God? Commit yourself to learning it better in a small group. That would be a great way to respond to John 1.1. And now I'm about halfway through the sermon, and you might be saying to yourself, you know, this isn't actually a verse that's primarily about the written word in the Bible. It's actually about the incarnate word in a person. And yeah, it is, but you realize, right, that it is written words in a text. And so we are studying written words in a text, which is the Bible. But let's move on to what the text is talking about. It's also teaching about a person who is the incarnate word. So again, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Specifically, then, now let's look at the verse. It teaches us that the person here called the Word, who was later identified, and this will be the only time I do this for a while, I'm going to tell you who the Word is at the beginning of the text. It's Jesus. But I'm not going to say that again after this sermon, because the text doesn't do that for a while, and we're just going to follow it. But the Word is Christ. It's saying that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the very nature and the very essence of God, but differentiated as a different person from God his Father. And that is a critical and necessary part of Orthodox Christian faith. We call it the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And one way we can see illustrated how much this matters, I think, 
is by noting that practically every struggle for the gospel and the integrity of the gospel in the early church, in the centuries just after Jesus came and died and rose again and ascended, almost every one of those actually aimed straight at the identity of Jesus Christ. When people wanted to attack the gospel, they asked the question, who is Jesus? And then tried to give a different answer than the one scripture gives. That should tell us that what this teaches is really important because there's a target here that the opponents of Christianity and the gospel go after. Who is Jesus? Was he really God? And to understand why that's so important, we only have to remember the central teachings of the gospel to see why this is a main point of attack by opponents of Christianity. If we could summarize the gospel's teaching about salvation with just a couple verses from Romans. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. Every person who has ever lived, as we have all sinned, we've fallen short of God's glory. In other words, what we were made to do by glorifying him and enjoying him, we've fallen short of that. We've all sinned and done things we know were wrong. We've all done sinned and done things, refused to do things we knew were right, like we just talked about in Confession. And keep reading in Romans 6.23 says, The wages, the earnings, the just reward of our sin is death. We all deserve eternal punishment. We all deserve eternal death. But Romans 3 and Romans 6 keep, and the rest of the book of Romans keeps going. It doesn't stop there and continues and says, God declares us justified, right in his sight, by grace, through faith in Christ. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're under a death penalty. Jesus can pay that death penalty by his life and death, so if we have faith in him, if we trust wholly in him, And in no one and nothing else, God's gift of grace applies to us. We could be saved from death to life. Here's the catch that applies to John. If Jesus isn't God, if John 1.1 is not true, that does not work. That can't happen. Because you see, if I'm under a death penalty, as scripture says I am, then I can't pay your death penalty. I can't save you if my life's already been taken paying my debt, right? It's been used up. And that means you have to pay your own debt too. And if Jesus is not God and he is under sin just as we are, then bad news. He can't pay your debt or mine either. He has to pay his own in his death. And his sin counts for no one's debt. His death, his death pays for no one's debt. His death pays for no one's sin but his own, right? It's just simple courtroom logic. But if he's God then he has no sin of his own. And he can live a perfect life. We call that his active obedience. He can die a death that trades his death for yours. We call that his passive obedience. And then as God, Jesus has the ability to extend that death to take on the sin of everyone who will believe in his body and his blood as breaking the power and paying the penalty of sin. If John 1.1 is true and Jesus is God, then that works. So do you see why it matters so much and why there's a target on this verse and on this idea? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God? If Jesus is not really God, then you have no hope. And you are actually the most foolish people on the planet, Paul says. But if he is God, if this is true, then this is your only way. This is the only truth, and this is the only place where you will find life. One early attack on the identity of Christ 
related to John 1, 1 came from a man named Arius and those who followed him. And they argued that Jesus is not co-eternal with God. He is not God. He is distinct from God. He is a creature God made and thus subordinate to him and separate from him. And you say, well, that's nice, but why should I care about someone who lived in the 3rd or 4th century? Like, that was a long time ago. Well, one good reason would be because we learn from history not to repeat its mistakes. And another reason would be that Arians are still walking around among us today trying to trick people. You've likely had one if you've lived in a house or rented a house or owned one. You've had one come to your door and hand you a Watchtower magazine and try to convince you to become a Jehovah's Witness. They are Arians. They participate in the same old heresy that Jesus is not actually God. And it's not unlikely if you've talked with them. I always enjoy it when they come to my door unless I'm really busy. I go get my Bible. I say, just a minute. I'll be right back. Let's have a conversation. Usually I get my Greek Bible because I like to show them how they're wrong about something we're about to look at in this verse in a second. They're going to probably turn to this verse in John and tell you that Jesus is not God. How well do you know your Bible? Their argument is based on a complete misunderstanding of Greek syntax and grammar. And so here it is, in summary form, the next time you talk to a JW at your door, go get your Bible and explain to them how they have everything upside down. Ready? They're going to tell you that that last clause, that last clause, and the word was God, should actually be translated, the word was, they're going to put the word A in there, and a lowercase g on God. The word was A, God. And they're going to argue that you have to do that because there's no definite article in the Greek, which is true. There's no the, that's the definite article, in the Greek. The Greek does not say, and the word was the God. So they would say, misapplying a rule of Greek grammar, that it must mean the word was a, lowercase, lowercase God. But the only way to to arrive at that conclusion is actually not to understand Greek syntax at all. So you can tell your JW friend the next time you talk to them the only way that this would say anything other than that the word is in the very nature and essence God, capital G, is if the article was actually there. They're making the wrong argument. They have it completely upside down. You see, if the article was actually present, if John had written the word was the God, then it would be saying that the word was actually God the Father, not Jesus. And it would collapse the Trinity into a single person, that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father would be the same person. That would be the only way to read that if there was an article there. So the only way to say what he's saying and make a careful Trinitarian statement is to not have the article. There is no indefinite article in Greek. So only the absence of the word the allows John to say the word was in the very nature and essence of God, but not the same person as God the Father. He's written it exactly as he has to, to say exactly that. And the Arians have just missed their Greek syntax class somewhere. The JWs have it upside down. So when they come to your door, explain that to them. And then get your Bible open and take them to Romans 3 and Romans 6 and share the gospel with them. Because Jesus is God, he can pay for your sin. And his death will, will break the power and pay the penalty of sin and you can be forgiven too. Share the gospel with them. Next time they come to your door. How well do you know the Bible? How well do you know your Jesus? Can you take this book? Say, here's what I believe and here's why and you should too. 
So John 1, 1 is teaching us about our Bibles, and it's teaching us about the Christ. He is God, and these things are critical to be disciples and critical to make them. If the Scripture really is our rule for faith and life, if we actually mean what we say when we say that we need to know it well enough that we can open it and explain what it says and live it out in front of anyone who's asking questions, whether that's a fellow Christian who wants to understand the faith more, someone who's exploring Christianity who wants to know what we believe. If Jesus really is God, then the Savior we say we trust in for eternal life is the same Lord who asks us to love him and live for him in everyday life too. Jesus is God. Means Jesus' words are not optional for his church. It means they are authoritative and necessary. So here's the second spot we can reflect on John 1.1 this morning. And this is, I told you there were seven questions, didn't I? Well, this is the seventh one. Here's the seventh question we want to ask. Do we love Jesus and do what he says? Do we love Jesus and do what he says? First John, which is a book that's a lot like the Gospel of John, it's one of his letters. First John 5 talks about how those two things go inextricably together. And it says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. See how those go together? By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. There they are together again. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. John's own gospel goes on to talk about the same thing this way in chapter 13, which we actually covered a couple weeks ago in the Joseph narrative. When Jesus says, a new commandment, I give you love one another. Just as I have loved you, which has in view the cross, just as I have loved you, emptying, humbling, dying a cross kind of death to save you even though you were my enemy and you stood in opposition to me and you wanted me dead, just as I have loved you and come back from the grave to show that there is eternal life available in my name, just as I have loved you and have ascended and sitting at the right hand of the Father on high where I plead my blood for all who are mine. Every time you sin, I'm there saying, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. I died for him. I died for her. Just as I have loved you, you love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. Jesus, if Jesus is God, if John 1 1 is true, then his words are not optional. They are commands to be obeyed and delighted in and enjoyed. So let's be honest with ourselves. How well do we love Jesus by loving each other? Are we generous? with our time and our talents and our treasure? Are we generous with our time? Will you give up your... This is something I have trouble with. Will you give up your own agenda and your own project list and your own tasks that need to get done to spend time with each other, to meet someone else's needs, to get to know them as your friend, to participate with them in the same family? Are we generous with our time? Are we generous with our talents? What I'm good at, what I've been gifted at, is for your benefit. What you're good at, what you've been gifted with, is for mine. 
Are we generous with our talents and using them to encourage each other and build each other up in Christ and just be plain old kind and thoughtful? And are we generous with our treasure, giving it to help each other when one is in need and the other has, giving it to advance the gospel ministry that goes on in and through this church? Are we generous here with our time and our talents and our treasure? And there are places in each of these things where each of us can take another step to the right to learn and love and live to be more like Christ. And I've said recently, (laughs) I see a lot of good going on. I see a lot of growing going on in this church. We're getting better at this. And that's really encouraging to me. And we can keep growing and maturing in this. And let's not stop what we've begun. So this morning we've read... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We've learned we need to keep learning to know our Bibles better, and we need to keep working to be able to answer well the question, who is Jesus? So let's bring these things together now. We have one commission for Advent. At each sermon, we have the same commission, which is open your heart and your life and your home to one other person, or one other family during Advent to show and speak the love of Christ. So as you are opening your life and your heart and your home to one other person or one other family to show and speak the love of Christ, add to that, open together the word of God and point them to Jesus Christ, their Savior. That's your commission from this text. As you work to know and better answer, who is Jesus? That's what the whole rest of John chapter 1 is really what the book is for. But the whole rest of John 1 is going to work us through that question. So come back next week. We'll keep going into, uh, into more of the prologue. Let's pray. Father, I pray just this. I pray that you would send us your spirit and help us to work out our salvation. Give us the will and the strength to do so this Christmas season by opening our lives, our hearts, and our homes to one other person or one other family so that we can show and speak the gospel to them and give us the courage and the wisdom to be able to open the word of God and show them how it applies to them and to us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.